0: What do resilient, sustainable, and high-performing supply chains have in common? They are all powered by GEP Software. Built on GEP Quantum, the AI-powered, low-code software platform for procurement, supply chain, and sustainability, GEP Software helps market-leading companies worldwide achieve breakthrough performance and results. GEP. Helping the world's best companies do better. Visit GEP.com.
1: The Economist.
2: Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Aura Okunbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Our sister company, The Economist Intelligence Unit, has just dropped its latest Democracy Index. Yes, there might be lots of elections coming up this year, but when you look under the bonnet, how healthy are these democracies really? And after being captured with his battalion during World War II, Jack Jennings slaved away on the Burma Railway under the Japanese. We pay tribute to the man who was probably the last living Allied prisoner of war. But first. The Soviet Union's launch of Sputnik 1 in 1957 marks the start of humanity's space age. Leap after leap followed. Yuri Gagarin became the first man in space just four years later.
0: Ignition
1: sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Lift off. We have a lift off.
2: 32 minutes. At the end of the 1960s, the world watched in awe as mankind stood on the moon for the first time.
1: Listen, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger. Tranquility.
2: We this wondrous exploration of the unknown was an opportunity to further human knowledge and to reflect on our very existence. But it also offered more sinister opportunities. As conflict spreads on Earth, ill omens are emerging in the firmament. Washington has been abuzz this week with rumours of a yet-to-be-deployed Russian space weapon although it's unclear exactly what. But what is clear is there's a good chance that the first shots of the next war between the world's big powers will be fired in space.
3: Space is usually thought of as a place for peaceful exploration.
2: Anton LaGuardia is The Economist's diplomatic editor.
3: But it is also increasingly a military domain and a domain of warfare because satellites are so important to everything that happens on the ground in military terms. They provide time signals for weapons, they provide position information, and they provide persistent eyes in the sky to find targets.
2: Tell me a bit more about how space is already a part of modern warfare.
3: There are thousands of satellites in space that do many different jobs. They became part of modern warfare starting in the Gulf War of 1991 when GPS, which we all have in our phones, was a novel thing that helped the Americans and forces with them navigate the famous left hook in the Iraqi desert. Later on, GPS provided the information needed for precision bombing. Communications provided the links to drones that allowed persistent drone surveillance. And much more. They've long provided early warning of missile launches. And these days, when missiles are launched in Ukraine or by North Korea, it is immediately seen by American commanders who can send information on where those missiles are headed very quickly to forces on the ground. So I had the chance to speak to the Chief of Space Operations, General Charles Saltzman, who talked to me for about an hour about what his force was doing and how it was developing.
1: There was a time when I was growing up in the service where we thought about space and its capabilities as kind of icing on the cake. But the Joint Force went through a process, it went through its war fighting. And then there were space capabilities that just made us a little better, made it a little sweeter, if you will, icing on the cake. Now I feel like we've evolved to the point where we're really more like eggs in the batter. We can't extract space from the joint team anymore. It breaks the whole team down.
3: People have been talking about dedicated space forces for some time, from as early as 2001, when a bipartisan commission floated the germ of the idea because it was already apparent that these very expensive and very important assets in space were vulnerable to a surprise attack, a space Pearl Harbor, as they put it. But the creation of the current Space Force seemed in 2019 like something of a whim by Donald Trump.
1: Importantly, I'm hereby directing the Department of Defense and Pentagon to immediately begin the process necessary to establish a Space Force as the sixth branch of the armed forces. That's a big statement.
3: In fact, serious people had been thinking about it long before, and it became something of a joke. Uh, it became a joke in late-night comedies, and Netflix even made a comic series. The president is creating a new branch, Space Force, <laughs> which Mark will run. <laughs> what? But I think it's now well-established, and even people who are not space people, not guardians, as they call themselves, think of this as the most important domain in warfare, simply because it enables so much power on land, sea, and air.
2: What exactly might the Space Force operations look like?
3: Warfare in space is still in its infancy, so this is not Star Wars, and there's no hyperspace-faring spaceships or ray guns as such at the moment. It's really part of strife on Earth. And I think one way to think about warfare in space is to imagine the age of hot air balloons and dirigibles. So this is similar in some ways, in the sense that satellites are very good platforms for observation. They're hard to maneuver, they're easy to spot, and they're largely defenseless. And the General talked to me about some of the problems involved in operating militarily in space.
1: There's nothing to hide behind in space. And so just the basic concepts of conceal and cover uh, change dramatically. Furthermore, to operate in space, you have to follow the rules of orbital mechanics. And that makes all of our orbits very predictable. And so it's not hard to find where satellites should be. It's not hard to see where the satellites are. And once you can see where strategic assets are, it's not a long stretch to say that those assets can become targetable.
2: Anton, how could militaries target satellites?
3: There are many different weapons in existence or being tested. The most visible and direct is what they call a direct-ascent anti-satellite weapon, which is a missile that you file from Earth or from the air at a missile, destroying it rather as you do targets in the terrestrial sphere. The trouble is that in space, you create a huge amount of debris which creates shrapnel that is almost permanently in orbit, damaging or posing a danger to everything else in its path. So really, the Americans who have a large number of assets in space want to look for different ways of doing this. So you can think of lasers, other forms of directed energy, such as microwaves or jamming satellites or dazzling them or getting close to them with other satellites and attacking them in that way. And a series of what they call rendezvous and proximity operations has really rattled the Americans because of the danger that they pose.
2: Anton, what would a war in space actually look like? Because the only thing that's coming to mind for me looks like something out of a sci-fi movie.
3: It does have that feel. The strange thing about it is that the people who fight in space have not ever really been to space. There are one or two astronauts in Space Force, but really most people have to do this through sensors and through exercises and simulations. This stuff is classified, so we don't really know. But there are some unclassified games done by think tanks who give you a sense. So, for example, one war game envisaged North Korea doing something quite simple but brutal, which is to send a nuclear weapon to space and detonate it in order to destroy satellites within its line of sight. So, for example, over the Pacific. That tells you that not just military satellites, but commercial satellites will need to be hardened against a thing called electromagnetic pulse. Then there was a, another war game where they envisaged terrorists from Pakistan using commercial technology to use drones to attack India. And the murkiness and the overlapping functions of commercial and military satellites there draws in other powers. So that tells you something about the need to regulate uh, the commercial sector and the need to be clear about what's military and what's not. And then finally, they did another test, envisioned a war between China and America over Taiwan. What became clear there is how the conflict spirals and actually ends up going close to the moon where people start to use things like moon orbits or hide objects in deep space. But perhaps the biggest danger, I think, is near-term miscalculation. A lot of the stuff is ambiguous. There are no clear rules of the road for what constitutes dangerous behavior or normal behavior. We don't really know what normal behavior in space is. So people may misinterpret things that happen. It's very tempting to stage gray zone attacks, things that are short of war, because... Space can be a bit like cyber warfare. Often nobody gets killed directly, so the kind of need to retaliate is less pressing. But if you took out, say, early warning satellites, the legacy of the Cold War is that this is seen as an act preparatory to a nuclear attack. So you really could escalate stuff without necessarily intending to.
1: When I really sit back and try to academically evaluate how a space war would go in terms of trying to achieve a military objective, I pretty quickly conclude that the answer is to focus on deterrence. Because once you go kinetic in space, you're on a slippery slope to fouling the domain for any use. And that's any use for decades. You know, it's almost like saying, how
3: do you win a nuclear war?
2: Anton, thank you so much for
3: your time. Thank you, Ori. Nice to talk to you.
0: What do resilient, sustainable, and high-performing supply chains have in common? They are all powered by GEP software. Built on GEP Quantum, the AI-powered, low-code software platform for procurement, supply chain, and sustainability, GEP software helps market-leading companies worldwide achieve breakthrough performance and results. GEP. Helping the world's best companies do better. Visit GEP.com.
2: As we told you at the start of the year, 2024 will be the biggest year for democracy ever, with more than half of the world's population going to the polls. But how many countries can be considered to be democracies? And how democratic are they? Every year, our sister company, The Economist Intelligence Unit, publishes its Democracy Index. It provides a snapshot of the state of democracy in the previous 12 months in 165 independent states and two territories, almost the entire population of the world. It scores them from one to 10 based on five categories, electoral process and pluralism, functioning of government, political participation, political culture, and civil liberties. And its brand new addition is a real mixed bag of results.
4: The good news is that the number of countries classified as democracies increased by two in 2023 to 74. So we have 24 full democracies. That's countries with scores above eight on this 0 to 10 index.
2: Joan Hoey is the editorial director of the Democracy
4: Index. And we have 50 flawed democracies. Those are countries with scores above six and less than or equal to eight. Measured by other metrics, the year was not such a great one for democracy. The global average index score fell to 5.23, down from 5.29 in 2022, and only 32 countries improved their index score in 2023 and 68 registered a decline and the rest, the scores stayed the same. So what we're seeing is a continuing democratic malaise and lack of forward momentum after this huge rollback of freedoms around the globe that accompanied the COVID-19 pandemic. So let's dig into the trends a little bit. Is it that democratic
2: places are becoming less so? Or is it that already undemocratic places are becoming even
4: more so? Or is it a bit of both? Most of the regression in 2023 is occurring among the non-democracies, the countries that are classified as hybrid regimes or authoritarian regimes by the democracy index. And the decline for the full democracies and flawed democracies was modest by comparison. So authoritarian regimes are becoming more entrenched and hybrid regimes, countries that have elements of democracy, but also elements of autocracies they are struggling to democratize so they're going in the wrong direction and how does this vary across different regions what we saw in 2023 was reversals in every single region of the world except for western europe and the biggest declines that we're seeing are in latin america and the caribbean especially in central america also in the middle east and north africa And in sub-Saharan Africa, they're all suffering from rising crime, rising insecurity and violence. Just to say about Latin America, because that was the biggest regression. And it's a region whose score has been declining for the past eight years. And what we're seeing there is a trade-off between security And democracy, rising levels of violent crime, leading people to support leaders advocating draconian solutions to the problem of insecurity. In other regions, such as North America, Western Europe, parts of Asia, we see that the political landscape in those places is becoming increasingly polarised and more countries are exhibiting low levels of trust in mainstream political parties and leaders. So we see people turning to populist parties or other alternatives it's a bit of a wake-up call, really. It's saying that having formal democratic institutions, rule of law, high standards of governance, is not sufficient to sustain public support. And part of the problem is that democratic institutions and political parties have become unresponsive or unrepresentative, even in the best-performing democracies. And that dissatisfaction with institutions... Did
2: that translate into apathy in terms of political participation scores?
4: Well, it certainly didn't in North America and particularly in the US. The US actually has one of the highest levels of political engagement in the world, if not the highest. And that's one of the less discussed Positive attributes of US democracy. Another country where political participation increased was Greece, which had two elections in 2023. Greece is a country actually that was upgraded to uh, become a, a full democracy. But as for most other places, the political participation score declined in every other region. The global average score for political participation has improved a lot between 2006 and 2023 so it's just had these kind of blips during the pandemic and last year and it may be a blip because 2024 is going to be a massive election year with more than half the population of the world or countries that are home to half the population in the world holding elections in 2024. And in
2: this bumper year for elections do you think that that will automatically inflate the democratic index for the year ahead?
4: Well, not necessarily, but we can hope. And I think we should certainly be celebrating this year as a huge achievement. We're going to see the biggest turnout of voters in the history of the franchise and universal suffrage We've already had some big elections in Bangladesh, in Taiwan, in Pakistan. We've just had a very big election in Indonesia. It's actually the biggest single-day election in the world with uh, potentially more than 200 million voters. So, yes, the fact that we have so many electoral democracies is a cause for celebration. Elections are a necessary condition for democracy, but clearly they're not a sufficient one. Elections need to be free and fair Now, our index shows that the conditions for free and fair elections exist in only 43 of the estimated 76 countries that are going to the polls in 2024.
2: Now, Joan, this year's report is called Age of Conflict. There are two prominent wars in Ukraine and Gaza, but is there more conflict in today's world than previously? Is it safe to conclude that democracy does not necessarily mean peace?
4: What we are seeing in the 2020s is an increase in violent conflict, certainly compared with the 2010s and with the 2000s, and is preventing progress in many countries. The report looks at the drivers of that, whether economic issues, competition for resources, and perhaps one of the greatest dangers to world peace lies in the realm of geopolitics that we've entered an era of intensifying great power rivalries, which if left unchecked, have the potential to unleash a devastating conflict.
2: Joan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. To take a look at what your country scores on the Democracy Index, you can follow the link in our show notes.
5: Jack Jennings was something of an expert on wood. Anne Rowe is The Economist's obituaries editor. He knew his oak from his ash and his elm from his beech, because since the age of 14, when he'd left school, he'd been working with timber. And he did so well at it, if rather slowly, that when he was 20, he'd made a whole bedroom suite out of oak. He was just finishing off the wardrobe when he was called up. He knew all the tools as well, of course, the hammers, chisels, but what he didn't expect was that within two years he was going to be asked to build a railway with tools like those. The country in which the Burma campaign is being fought is about the most difficult in the world from an operational point of view. The railway in question ran from Thailand to Burma, now Myanmar, 250 miles through thick jungle. The Japanese occupying power had made this a particular project and they recruited 200,000 Asian civilians and 60,000 Allied prisoners of war to help build the railway. Jack Jennings found himself a prisoner of war because his battalion was hemmed in and captured entirely during the fall of Singapore in 1942. And so he found himself being made to march from railway camp to railway camp for the next three and a half years. The heat was stifling and searing and the mosquitoes were brutal. And they worked, all these men, in hardly any clothing at all because of the heat. The other problem was that you were often cutting bamboo at the same time. This was very thick-grown bamboo And it would leave splinters and shards around the place which, if you didn't watch out, would get into your flesh and cause infections. Now he managed to make himself a pair of wooden shoes, rather nicely designed, as you'd expect from a joiner. So he protected his feet against the bamboo, but he did get a shard in his left leg, which eventually grew into an ulcer the size of a pear. In fact, illnesses and accidents dogged these poor workers. They were slave labourers, there's no getting round it. He himself got malaria and dysentery. He also got renal colic, which was bad enough to put him in a camp hospital for nine months. He was very lucky to avoid getting cholera which at one point was carrying away 14 or 15 workers a day and he was also lucky not to fall into the despair of a friend of his who simply seemed to lie down one night and give up and was found dead beside him in the morning but then he wasn't the sort to give up he'd had a pretty rough childhood Living in a house where there were nine of them sharing three bedrooms, where there was no internal plumbing, and there was no heating, little or none, and he would go down to the railway that ran very close and scrounge coal that fell off the steam trains. His father died when he was eight, and this meant everything became a struggle for the family, and that was why he had to leave school early and go and earn some money. But he got through it, he kept up with his joinery, and the thing that really raised his morale was that he played the harmonica. He'd started playing it when he was six. When he was in his teens, he began to join up with a harmonica band and wear a rather smart outfit to go and play concerts in schools. When he was first caught up in the war, he would play his harmonica at the top of a hat, and any time anyone wanted a tune or... The men wanted to organise a concert, he was there. And he was only sorry that he so overplayed it in those early months of the war that by the time he was on the ship to go out to Singapore, he found there was no sound left in it at all and he threw it into the sea. It was a shame because when he was engaged on building the railway, he really could have done with that. Once he got home, he very quickly resumed the life that he'd had before he was called up. He married Mary, he had two daughters, he went back to his woodworking. But the Burma Railway he didn't talk about very much at all, and it was only in the 1990s that he began to write a memoir about it. And then decided that he would rather like to visit... And he went to visit Thailand. He went four times in the end. And he was always remarkably impressed and always surprised with how lovely it seemed and how well cared for the graveyards were. And he found himself simply appreciating the beauty of the place, not really thinking so much of all the men who had perished there, but appreciating the country as it was and the people as they now were. He even visited the railway that he'd helped build. There was not much of it left. Most of it had been removed. So he concluded in the end and declared that the ghosts of his past had been laid by returning. He bought another harmonica and played that until he was in his hundred. And once again, he found he could be happy wherever he was.
2: on Jack Jennings, who has died aged 104. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Chris MP and Jack Gill. Our deputy editor is John Joe Devlin and our sound engineer is Will Rowe. Our senior producers are Rory Galloway and Sarah Larniuk. Our senior creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Maggie Kadifa and Benji Guy. And our assistant producer is Henrietta McFarlane. Subscribers, we'll see you back here tomorrow for the Weekend Intelligence.